0: I'd say one of my rules for innovators are go slow up front and everything downstream goes much faster. And this gets back to jobs thinking and outcome driven innovation.
1: Well, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our very special guest, Mr. Rob Shade. Rob was the second employee of the most well-known consultancy for jobs to be done, Stratagen. He built it into a global firm with offices in six countries, turning Tony Owick's brilliant ideas into a successful business. Today, he's the chief customer officer of Stratagen, where he leads their business development efforts. I should add, though, that along the way, he's had some pretty cool and unusual experiences, such as being a nightclub owner in New York City. But beyond being a great thinker and jobs we done and builder of business, Rob is a great friend of mine with whom we've had many adventures. Maybe we'll touch on one or two of those as we go here. But I can personally vouch for his good taste in movies, music, and food. Rob Shade, welcome to the Product Quest podcast.
0: Great. Thank you for having me. I love that bio. Can I have that?
1: People like our bios. That's one thing we get good feedback. feedback (laughs) Maybe that's one of our our specialties. And Rob, we'll get into the job we done stuff soon enough, but I have to say, I do think one of the most interesting things is owning a nightclub in New York city. Before we get into the job stuff, do you have any interesting stories from that era you could, you'd be willing to share?
0: Sure. Sure. Uh, it was, you You don't have the limitations you do as you get older when you're young, right? You just say, we can do this. And we all like going to bars and going out at night on the weekends. My friends and I in New York said, we should open a bar. We should open a club. Mm-hmm. It's no different than someone else saying, I'm going to start a business around something else that you like. You're a fly fisherman. You want to do, we're going to start a fly fishing school or whatever that is, a, a passion. I'm not saying my passion was dancing or maybe a little bit of the drinking side, but it was just getting people together and having fun. And so we, we a group of 10 of us, pooled our money and opened a nightclub in New York City. It was, just, it was just craziness ensued after that. We were on the front page. When we opened, we're on the front page of the New York Times worldwide. This was New York, London, Tokyo. Wow. Our picture on the front page. Now I shouldn't say that. the front page of the business section of the New York Times, and we had lines out the door. It was crazy, because it was a kind of an anti nightclub for New York's purposes. New York was the hip nightclubs. You had to be cool to get in. Yeah. You people would pick and choose. You choose to who got in. This was the Studio Fifty Four's day days or post that, but that Studio Fifty Four kicked that whole that whole milieu of who was going to be seen there at any given time. Well, we were just a bunch of people working in New York and financial services. A lot of Wall Streeters. We just said we want a nightclub that we can get into. So we built. <laughs> we built a. For, we built for a different target demographic, a different segment. Yeah. Now I didn't know anything about segments back then. I'm just like, we want to build something for ourselves. We did, and uh, it was very successful. It went for ten years. Uh, I was only part of that club for the first 2 years and opened another nightclub on the other side of Manhattan uh and did that for another 3 years but that's a young man's business and by the time I turned 30 I was like yeah this is this is not <laughs> this is no longer for me but it was fun I learned a lot about business it was an MBA times 2 in everything about it from marketing to selling to organization and and hiring and uh it was it was very very interesting i met a lot of great people i met some famous people uh and yeah just it was it was uh it was a youthful endeavor and i'm glad i did it and i'm glad i got out of it
1: any anything (laughs) any events like uh the day that bob dylan walked in or or, uh, I oh yeah!
0: Like oh, there's t- I have so many of those. One day, uh, I'm, I'm at the bar and I go, "That guy looks just like Billy Idol," and it was Billy Idol's in a bar of preppy New Yorkers yeah. sitting there. He just walked in. The doorman recognized him and go, "Billy, come on in, come on in," and they brought him downstairs and he hung out all night long, danced by himself. <laughs> this is. <laughs> This is, this was, this, we, we, our location on the west side was fantastic. It was 72nd and Columbus. And everyone would walk by. Mike Tyson liked to eat at a Cuban restaurant two doors down. So (laughs) we'd, uh, we'd, we'd joke with him as he walked by. He was a very, very affable guy. Yeah. And on the, in the right context, I imagine. Um, But, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Kevin Bacon and his wife lived right around the corner they loved to dance they'd come down dance for a while then just leave you know they just it was just something they liked to do so
1: so you're just one degree of separation from kevin bacon
0: yes i guess i am and i didn't get two. i didn't get to meet him he was there but i didn't get to meet him I, I i tried not to be too invasive to the celebrities that came but we weren't a celebrity club At all, we had a lot of sports people come. A lot of the New York Rangers like to go there, and uh, the hockey team, and some of the Knicks, New York Knicks, like to come there. Uh, And a few of the New York Mets, baseball team, like to come there as well. And they didn't get hassled, which was something that they they really enjoyed. Um, So yeah, it was it was it was fun.
1: That's that's excellent. That's there's not. A, I'm sure we could talk for hours about story that story. There, and I know.
2: I know. I had that thought. Like I should open a bar. That's at least <laughs> once I had that thought.
0: I think we all have.
2: Yeah. Right. <laughs> well,
1: somewhere along the line, you ran across a gentleman named Tony Owe, and uh you guys together really got strategy and kicked off. I wonder. And a lot of our, you know, we don't, we're not technically a jobs, we done themed podcast, but we tend to talk about it a lot. So I think our listeners might be interested a bit in that. How did you meet Tony? And how did you originally learn about ODI?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about my career before uh, sure. Strategy. And After I did the nightclub business, I moved to California and worked at four different startups doing sales and marketing for them. Uh, two of them were minor successes, meaning we had exits and People got paid out and what have you. And two of them were just dismal failures. And I was coming off a dismal failure when uh, I started thinking about like what makes one company successful and another not successful. We thought we had a great idea at this company that failed and it still is a very good idea. It was very complex. And there's a lot of reasons a business will fail. Jobs to be done. And outcome-driven innovation will help improve the likelihood of that success dramatically. But there's still a whole host of other things you've got to get right. And we didn't get those things right, nor do I think we actually had the outcomes down either for that. But whatever, whatever I, I didn't know what those things were at the time. And, and so I spent a year working with another gentleman trying to turn QFD or QFD type model quality functional deployment is that is that what the f is i forget it's been so long that's right that's right into a software that could help us think about needs and get to the point where ultimately tony was pointing at i i didn't know about that yet so we started building the software and everyone when i told them we're making innovation software everyone wanted to talk to me i was pre-selling it before we would built a lick of code it was all slideware but we were we were talking to a lot of people so everyone wanted to talk to us turned out no one wanted the software <laughs> they said to us they said we don't even know if this if innovations a process i mean what's the software going to do for us you know they're like we don't we don't know they didn't know what they didn't know they go we would like you to come in and train us or come in and 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 help us and consult and i'm like well i'm i'm not sure i'm in that position to do that yet I know there's a problem, and I think I found some ideas on how to maybe address that problem, but I really didn't have a, the underlying job to be done formulated. So I'm, I'm reading everything I can, and this article comes out, Turn Customer Insight into Innovation or Input. I read it, and I, I called him up. I just sent him an email, and he said, yeah, I'd like to talk to you. I said, I want to license, I want to license your model because we're trying to build this software and, and I need a model because, and and I, you know, having run sales and marketing for four different startups, one of the things I see all that happen all the time is people will create software around a problem, but they really don't have a process orientation around it. They'll be fixing points of that total job. There's a, there's some software out there now, I'll, I'll remain nameless, It's a very big software company and they still don't have a good process orientation. Now I guess you can be successful without it, but I know their customers are unhappy anyway. So I talked to Tony, I said, Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to license it. He goes, well, I'm going to be in San Francisco. I was living in the Bay area. I'm going to be in San Francisco next week. Let's have lunch. We did. He said, come on and come on and work with me on this. I'll teach you how to do it. And so it was very, I killed the software project and went working with them. I thought I was going to do it for a year or two. Said, I love the model. I think this would be like a superpower if I can master it. It Took me a little longer to master than I thought. But we started to grow. And uh, we got Microsoft as a big account. Did something like 40 projects at Microsoft over the years. And we were just up to our eyeballs and we were just growing the business. So I just stayed. (laughs) I I like what I do. Uh, I like Talking to a myriad of businesses, we've talked. We've t- been. In, we've talked to companies in every walk of life you can imagine. Some crazy ones too. I, sports betting, uh, uh, bananas. You know, I know more about bananas than I ever thought I'd know <laughs> from doing a project for Chiquita. But and snack foods. But what is interesting, the more you do this, and the more you work on these projects, the more you learn about business in general and you find these patterns that are repeated across very different businesses so when businesses says well have you ever done any work in my business and i say no but it doesn't matter i i don't need to know your business i need to understand who your customer is and where you're trying trying to create value and that's the framework that's why it's so powerful anyone who really internalizes jobs to be done thinking can start thinking about any business and and Understand some of the core fundamental principles of that business by understanding what they're trying to do for the customer. And so I, it's it's been a it's been a long uh, twenty years of doing this and learning. But I still learn every week. I talk to customers. I'm I'm building onto this database of patterns I have in my head, and and jobs to be done for me has been one of the most kind of unifying and simplifying models. I've come across so I, I i liken it akin to a philosophy
3: you you mentioned that uh it's some some things took long to master could you go in a bit more detail what was what was the hardest for you what took so long to master
0: yeah so jobs theory at the top level is very intuitive very simple theory right i mean when you hear it you're like that's it that's the whole theory Customers come to you because they've got an underlying job to be done? Yes, that's it. That's how simple it is. But what Tony did was said, there's something missing. There's this other element, this element below, these outcomes that describe the perfect execution of that job. The more precise you get on the outcomes, the more discrimination you're going to get in people saying if they're important or not important. Precision is the the secret sauce of outcomes. So." Outcomes are written in words. Words have meaning, multiple meanings. There are multiple words in the English language that mean the same thing. So, is it cash flow? Is it, uh, is it uh, you know, or is it debt or is it uh, credit? Those words can mean di- totally different things to people. So, semantically, that was one of the challenging things. One is just making sure that you're consistent in the way you write your need statements, hugely important. Second thing is, is turning off the idea part of your brain. We as humans love to jump to ideas. I mean, there's not been a company that we've talked to that have said, uh, do you have a shortage of ideas? They've never said, yes, we have a shortage of ideas ever, ever. And never will they because we as humans think about ideas. So thinking about ideas I mean think about it. the idea jumps to the forefront of the need as opposed to the underlying outcome. And, and so needs get get embedded into outcome statements accidentally. Here's an example. Uh, monitor, monitor something in an outcome statement. Minimize the time it takes to monitor something. Well, you have to ask yourself, why are you monitoring? Monitoring is a solution for something else you're monitoring it what happens if you didn't have to monitor it you're really trying to detect if something is going to happen or or determine when something goes out of bounds of a of a range that you need to understand that's just that's a very esoteric one but i want to use that example because that's how that's be, that's how this it's in solutions insidiously insert themselves into outcome statements so it took me it took me a couple of years to get good at writing these and what really got me good is when we had our uh extended uh teams in europe really going over hundreds of need statements with them uh was it was a great practice for me so anyone who wants to learn this you, it's like anything else playing guitar playing golf fly fishing you got to practice
2: can i can i just jump in here I, I i like this a lot and i i completely agree that i mean what really makes jobs to be done fly, is, is, is that outcome statement, is, is that addition to the thought, like how, how do you measure actually how well a job gets done or not? Could you elaborate a bit, I, I like where, okay, maybe that I put it that way. Where I struggle very often is, how do you explain the value of precision? Like, because I think there is, and maybe I would wonder if you agree, There is we have a tendency as humans as well to not be precise to speak very, very vaguely, to use terms that are extremely vague.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean,
2: what, for example, easy is one of the most common ones. Like, I want, of course, everybody wants things to be easy. And there is this idea that we understand what we mean by it, but yeah. it's extremely vague. So, so how, like, what's the value of precision?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, we know when you have an abstract, let's call it a fat, Need statement. It's got easy in it or something. Yeah. You're not going to get precision when someone rates it, make it easy to use. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, it's pretty well satisfied. You're just not going to get that as if you have there's probably 15 outcomes that describe yeah. easy. Now we know this from uh one of the other early people to join Strigen was a guy named Bob, or as a guy named Bob Panisi. He's still 20 plus years at Stratagen. He came over from Motorola. He'd been using Tony's model for 10 years prior to him joining. He he had had Tony at Motorola for years. Bob tells a story about he was working on the emergency radios, you know, for police and firemen that use. And they were doing some studies on, you know, trying to come up with new Innovative features for them, and they said we talked to all these firemen. They said, "Yeah, the basic thing is it's got to be easier to use."
2: Yeah, that yeah,
0: and 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 so Tony's like, "Yeah, but there's ten or fifteen things." It turned out there's like seventeen or twenty qualities that we're using this remote phone. And what they did was then they quantified and they saw there's three that made all the difference. And they they changed the features to address those three precise measures of easy to use. And these guys have gloves on, you know, when they're fighting fires, and they have to, you know, actuate the buttons. It was three or four outcomes that changed the game, and Motorola released a bunch of products, and the products took over the market. That was because of precision, because you know exactly where they were struggling. There's a great author who wrote a book called "What's it? The the uh, Statue and the Stone.
2: <laughs> That's a book I. I I've had it somewhere. I've
0: but. heard of it.
3: Yeah, I've never yeah. heard of this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but but
0: you know I love the way Scott put it in his book. You know the you know perfection is achieved by removing all the imperfection or removing all the stone around the that beautiful statue in the middle. That is the same thing for any product. Well, it's got to get the job done. How do you know to get the job done? You can't ask people to say what's the the perfect execution. If you ask them, they're going to tell you. Well, they can't. I, it can't. Ha- this can't happen and that can't happen. So when I do a project, that's ultimately what we're asking. What can go wrong as you do the job? People can talk in very precise ways at that point. Because then I go back, well, well, I was doing this and this happened. You say, well, why is that bad? Well, because of this. And why is that bad? Because of this. And all of a sudden, we're at the outcome statement. And I know it seems like the three whys, but people, people in the business – afraid to ask these questions they just taking down verbatims the whole voice of the customer movement said hey go talk to your customers they just didn't tell you what to ask them they didn't tell you what was valuable
2: yeah i like that really sorry go
1: on i was i mean that was just the big thing i learned from tony i mean that i I put it in the book but i i i'm the curator it was completely his idea i would never thought of it on my own we were net you're talking about when you're net, when you're going through outcome statements with somebody, and you're you're critiquing them, and I was we were, I was doing that with Tony, and I had one it was like increase the likelihood of some good thing happening. And he's like, no, Scott, that's not what we're doing. We're minimizing the likelihood of some bad thing happening. The job is this thing we want to accomplish. All the outcomes we're trying to understand everything that goes wrong. We get rid of that. What are we left with is perfection. That was all. That was that was a big aha, and that was all. That's all Tony O It's one of, in fact, just one of the, I mean, to me, that was such a leap forward in my own thinking. I mean, just if I interview a customer, what are they, what's everything that goes wrong? It's just sort of a, a mentality you keep throughout. And I, 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 I just, it's, I mean, it's like anything. Once you, once you sort of see this new thing, you can't unsee it. I can't see the world the way before Tony taught me that. Don't you think people
0: are naturally that way? I mean, let me ask you guys a question. When you're going yeah. to buy something on Amazon, what's the first thing you do?
1: Reviews. Look at reviews.
0: Yeah. And which reviews
3: do you look at? The worst and the best. Yes. Yeah. But the worst <laughs> <true>. first.
2: The, <laughs> the worst. worst first. I always look yeah. at the worst.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I look at the worst too. Why do you
1: do that? Yeah. You know, I usually have very specific things I'm looking That's for. True. I have a very sub small subset. I'll give you an example. I was I'm shopping for wallets. I've had the same wallet for 22 years. Figure it's time. <laughs> but there's a very specific need of why I'm looking for it. Is well now they um, we have all these Apple trackers. They have wallets that will take this new Apple tractor device. I forget what it's called. And yeah, a wallet's Tags not something. something I want to lose. And so it's it's we we can sit here and talk about what that outcome is. Minimize likelihood of losing your wallet. What something similar to that it was to accomplish that outcome was even what put me in the market to begin with. Uh,
2: Yeah. yeah. But I do that with hotels as well. I always look at the worst and then see (laughs) kind of decide from there. But what I really like, I mean, and, and I think that is something like where, if you actually do that process, if you talk to customers in that way and want to find out, you realize that exactly as you said, people speak that way. People think that way. So I think very often in business, we, we tend to, I mean, companies are made that way that we think in abstract terms. Strategy is something very abstract or in broad terms, but where in fact, people are tremendously concrete. So it's it's something yeah. very precise and concrete that makes the difference. And I think, I mean, if you ask the business people sitting in the meeting room, how they go about their decisions when they, uh, when they go about buying products, of course, they are very precise and know exactly why they buy one thing over the other. But the customer... Come on. So I I really like this. That I think this this what could seem as as a kind of overly precise way and strange way of speaking. That's exactly how that's how people talk. If you know how to ask them, if you know how to kind of get it out of them, that's how they speak. Yeah, yeah.
0: So going back to the model, if you get that and then you just wrestle with the semantics because you do you, you do need to get precision, then you've got it. And that's what took me a couple of years to learn. But once you do it, you do it enough. It then starts to become pretty second nature. You start thinking this way. When you ever, you buy a product, you're like, why did they design it this way? Outcomes just start filling out of your head. Like, you know, they've missed the boat on so many things here. Why is that?
1: This precision words. I don't know if you, anybody's, if you guys have seen the, the show, Larry David curb your enthusiasm, but there was mm-hmm. a there, oh you guys got to watch it but anyways there was one where larry david was seeing an acupuncturist and he was very skeptical it was, he was very skeptical it was going to work and so they made a bet and the bet was would he get better or not and larry said well I bet it was like $5,000 or something substantial but you $5,000 <laughs> this will not this will not make me better and um then he saw the the acupuncturist socially and that, and just actually so you feeling better larry said yeah i'm feeling better and so, but when he answered it, he meant, Larry meant better as in improved and the acupuncturist was like, oh, he's better. I'll win the bet. And so then they went in this argument, <laughs> but it was because when, when he said he was better, better meant improved as opposed to I'm better, meaning like completely cured, um, uh, sort of a funny little,
0: uh, that is best because they didn't have precise outcomes describing better. Better is a fat word. Right, it's easy yeah. to use <laughs> better.
1: Right. The uh, you know one th- is is one topic we find that jobs be done people have often have different takes on is this idea of the emotional job how are they important? how well do they fit practically speaking are they worth gathering um well, well, so what's what's your take on the ro- on the role of emotional jobs uh with a yeah. study or just in our thinking
0: I I, I like the emotional job area uh, I don't think anyone's done it very well. I don't think anyone, like they've got, there's some science and people have been, you know, you have things attached to your head and they ask you questions and they can see where your, your body, you know, gives positive and negative feedback. That's, yeah. that's non you know, non-linguistic. It's, you know, it's, uh, and so people are trying to do those things. We have a, I think a rudimentary, but I think a powerful, I mean, we have a, a basic, but powerful i think powerful way of looking at them emotions are there's a set of emotions there's there's they're not unlimited they're they're definable happy confident uh fearful these are all emotions so there's a number of them and we we can document all of them and some of them mean very similar so you you i think I think you could probably boil it down to 30 emotions. I just made that number up, so don't take – but there's some number. So when I am – I'm going to use some financial examples because I do a lot of work in the financial services space. But when I man- the job, do the job of manage monthly cash flow as a consumer, I want to feel confident. I want to feel wise. I want to feel uh, in control. Now I shouldn't even do that. It's a little too much functional. Feel, yeah. uh, uh, let's see, confident, wise, empowered. Uh, what was that
2: like feeling empowered?
0: Empowered could like be that? one. Yeah, yeah. Proud. I mean, yeah. There. Yes. Yeah, so whatever. Those things. So what we do is we look at those, but we, you don't. These emotions don't act on themselves. They act related to something. And so we say, when managing cash flow, how do you want to feel? Uh, you know, uh, confident, avoid feeling fearful. So we measure them based upon the job. And then we can correlate between the outcomes and the emotional jobs. And we can say, we've, uh, we've got some great work done. Uh, I have one on servicing a used vehicle, I mean, servicing a vehicle and, uh and, You look at these needs and you say, these five emotional jobs, if you do these five outcomes really well, you can claim these emotional jobs in your marketing and positioning. And it was really very, very powerful. Now, you can't build a product around emotion. You communicate the value of your product around emotion at times, function and emotion. You don't want to be too skewed on the emotion. You don't want to be too skewed on the functional. You want to have a a mix of both. But we have companies that come to us and go, yeah, but the job is really emotional. Can you study it with ODI? And I say no, because there's not outcomes on emotions. Emotions are tied to some event. If you're doing the job of managing cash flow, you can feel frustrated. You can feel fearful. You can feel confident. But you don't just walk around feeling fearful. I mean, some people do. That's called a phobia. (laughs)
3: It's not a a normal state. (laughs) yeah it it seems to me that uh, a lot of the times when we talk about emotional jobs in jobs to be done it's um as you say um a result of some functional uh, realization or, or something happens and you have an emotion so or you use a product and you feel confident because um in the background some some functional outcomes have been solved that give you this feeling, but I'm wondering if there are some, and I'm not sure, I don't know if emotional jobs is really the right terminology, but some, let's call them emotions just for, for, for the sake of it, that, that are not, that don't emerge from some solving of a, of a functional problem, let's say. So, examples like um you know when you're buying a car you will people will look at the car and say well that that looks nice that looks like a nice car and i think one could argue that that really has a big impact on on the sales i mean if a car looks nice people will um will will purchase it and that cannot be captured it seems to me or i'd be curious to know what you think in a kind of jobs approach and also a lot of activities like um um listening to music for example not the experience of okay how do you play music which is a well known example but i mean the actual experience of i like this song and i don't like this song or whatever yeah um is this something we can use or or for example the film industry, watching a film, you know, how can we apply jobs to be done in, in that context? Um, so I was wondering if this is something that we can handle or we should just say, well, no, that's out of the scope. And we should just let people be creative and not really define what that is.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I would agree uh, wholeheartedly. Would you describe though, were subjective things, color, taste, Design. Those are those are subjective music. It's subjective. Now, some will say this is better than this categorically because it's, you know, there's so many instruments over here and it's just a bongo or whatever they, you know, whatever they are using. They'll use some sort of functional things, but it is ultimately subjective. We're talking about core functional things that are objective. Taste, smell, sight. Those are senses and they are subjective and what people like. I've got a blue shirt on. You've got a dark sweater on. These are subjective choices that we make. And outcome-driven innovation and jobs to be done has nothing to say about that. Zero. Like we, we, do, a, we do work with food companies. Food is highly functional, but it's highly subjective too, right? Taste is totally subjective. Now, we know it's some stuff's hot and some stuff's sour, and some stuff's sweet. We know that that's objective, but the subjective stuff is how you like it, and so we don't ever work on the food to make it taste better, but we do we do work with food companies on the uh, the functional elements of food, and there's a whole movement now about functional foods; they're getting it, but I agree i, I we wouldn't do jewelry. We've done some clothing. Clothing has become much more functional. You have like phones for your, you know, your iPhone, you know, pockets for your iPhone or uh, uh, heaters in your, heaters in your, you know, gloves or what have you. So they're, they're becoming more functional, but the design side, we have nothing to
2: say. And I like that a lot. I mean, it's, but, there, but would you say, for example, in things like jewelry, the, the, the thing I'm always struggling with is perfume that's also kind of in this more uh, ethereal space. But what do you say there is, but there is always a functional aspect to it, no? Like that we can study. I mean, jewelry sure. is the things like I'm putting it on and I squeeze my skin or something. So there is functional aspects always. That's the consumption work. of it, yeah, yeah. But maybe that maybe there is a space or I don't know, an industry where it's, it's not about that. So you couldn't design, could you design a winning piece of music with jobs to be done or not or just that that's so that that would be subjective well i was trying to do that <laughs>
0: <laughs> <on> chat <laughs> okay. chat gpt right or whatever that is, G- is it's gpt yeah. G- yeah. gpt, I think GPT right. I think. yeah and so i i put it in some parameters and it gave me a a a, a pretty lousy uh country song but then our <laughs> friend john put it in scott and it was a much better one he put in more parameters and it actually. But it was no music associated with It's just lyrics. Um, mm. Can you do this? I you know, I think you could use outcomes, jobs, ODI, outcome-driven innovation, jobs and outcomes in things like movies for kids. But it's not about the movie. It's about what the parents yeah. want the kids to learn from the movie, highly functional. Yeah. They want to learn values. Yeah. They want to learn they there they have metrics for that. Yeah. Uh minimize the likelihood yeah. that uh concepts that we don't think our children are ready for are introduced in the Yeah. And and it's it's I, happening. I and, and I yeah. think, you know, to your Disney posts, Scott, <laughs> they're doing stuff that I think a lot of parents don't actually want. And that's that's functional. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the story. So and there are good. Listen, there are good story arcs. I think there's function in a story arc. You could you could yeah. create outcomes around a story arc. It wouldn't tell you what to fill in there, but it would. There is things yeah. that we like. You know, as as humans, we like to be s- suspenseful, and we like it to be. We like problems to be resolved in the end. And so there, those are and those are pretty yeah. well known.
2: Yeah. No, I completely. I liked it a lot. I completely agree, and I think maybe there we we. Sometimes we make people angry, but I think you could even say something like, "Okay, I'm going to do something very terrible." But you could take something like love, or in that space, and or so the way I was thinking about perfume was always, to, I mean, to attract somebody else or to make somebody like find being attractive or however you want to then phrase it in the end. That's highly functional, right? We think of that as something very emotional, but it's but look at the behavior of
3: people; it's very yeah. functional. We think yes, a lot the, about this concrete but, out i think there's outcomes attached to that so well i i agree with you on on that on the perfume i definitely think i mean that is one of the functional reasons we would use it but but it's then obviously very difficult to define the outcomes because the this, this is where you you kind of get blocked because the i mean how can you define outcomes on the smell of a of a perfume it's again very subjective
2: yeah yeah but we- so, yeah. Oh, sorry you on.
3: No, I just say on the perfume side, it would be
0: very limited. It'd be like minimize the likelihood that the smell overwhelms people around me, minimize the likelihood that the smell passes on to others who may not want it or, or you know, make someone, you know, who triggers an allergic reaction. These are highly functional uh, yeah. around it, but it had nothing to do with designing the perfect perfume, the smell, or, you know, it would, it would. And we just did we just did a study on this in freshening air in a room.
2: Ah.
0: Highly functional, but had yeah. nothing to do with the smell. We didn't say it had to be rose or lilac or you know, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with uh how it was dispersed and consumed and, and lingered and didn't stain things. It was highly functional.
1: This yeah. actually so- brings us sorry to a, a topic of of approaching a new market. And trying to determine how jobs be done would be applied to it, and we use the term framing and Rob, as uh you know leading business development strat for twenty years is probably framed more projects than anybody else on earth uh Rob I wonder if, first of all if you'd um, give us a definition of how how you would define framing and then give us a sense of of what are the what how to do it well? What are some things to think about when you, want to frame, when you want to frame a project?
0: Yeah, well, every project, let me just say every company who's building a product or service is doing it around some job that the customer wants to get done. That's why they're giving you money. And this goes back to Adam Smith, wealth of Nations, sort of stuff, exchange of value for something, right? So there's that underlying job. So you want to frame a product around the job. Sometimes it's incredibly intuitive and it's not a problem. Sometimes it's not intuitive. And it's also based upon what the customer, our client, is trying to get done. Not the end customer, but what is our client trying to get done? So if you're trying to create the next version of a product and you know you're not going to innovate off of that product platform, then you should, your framing should be closer to the product because the needs will be very precise around the platform. There's nothing wrong with that. So when Tony did work for Bosch on the circular saw, the job was cut wood in a straight line. Well, cut is, indicates sort of the platform, doesn't it? Didn't say separate wood or divide wood into shapes. It said cut. Mm-hmm. So it assumed a saw and the dimension and that was fine they made it a war uh, an award winning saw from studying that but if someone wants to come up and say we really just want to separate wood in perfect angle you know separate wood in you know various shapes then everything would be on the table and a laser or water and sand cutting tool or whatever those things are could come out as the as a potential solution so Framing is just getting who is the job executor and what is the job they're trying to get done. Now, getting a job executor in B2B can be challenging for our clients. It's not so much for us, but it is for them. I'll talk about that in a second. So understanding who the job executor is and what the job is. But the job is going to be framed on what you're trying to do. So I have a client, a big financial institution who helps people save for retirement. They wanted to go beyond that. they wanted to take that job. saving for retirement is really uh, saving towards a goal, and so they just wanted to make it more abstract around saving for anything to ach- basically achieving a financial goal yeah. so we studied that, but they went in wa- eyes wide open. It was less about retirement as around saving for any goal, achieving a financial goal that was their that was their thing that was their uh their desire, their goal. And so we elevated it up a little bit. Clients often will say these very abstract jobs, like be happy in life exactly. or be successful. So you can get outcomes on that, but they'll be incredibly obtuse. Yeah. So, so uh, you don't wanna, the basic is what are you trying to achieve? We frame based upon what they are trying to achieve. If you go and practice uh, framing a project, like our clients struggle all the time. And they're like, well, should it be this, this? And I say, well, what, you know, I ask a couple of questions about goals and all of a sudden we've gone from way up here right back down because they're not going to go create a laser to cut wood. No, they're going to create a saw that's electric, that, you know, and it's, Yeah, so you get the general idea. It's framing is hard when the job is when they're so focused on their products that they can't see the forest through the trees, meaning at a bank. This is a a classic example banks have credit cards, debit cards, checking accounts, savings accounts, short term loans. These are all products in service of managing cash flow. They have no division in the bank called managed cash flow, but they have divisions for credit cards and debit cards and savings accounts, and they don't even talk to each other inside the business. Now, isn't this crazy? Shouldn't, don't you think there should be someone in a bank that's the head of managed cash flow? Because then you're just looking for the next solution that helps people do this. And it's not so disparate. It's not the credit card, the debit card, and the, you know, it's... It's needlessly complex for the consumer. And it's a unifying. That's why I say jobs to be done should be a simplifying principle, not a complicating principle. Anything that is of value should be simplifying in in, in essence. Now, some of it is hard as you practice it, but the principle is incredibly simple. So in a bank, what happens if you put everything under managed cash flow as a division? I guarantee you the business is going to work better. They're going to come up with ideas they would have never thought of. But that's because we're trying to do the whole job on one platform. But it's not the bank's interest. It's not the financial institution's interest. What credit card company have you used that when you're about to buy something, called you up and said, wait a minute, Scott, Jan, don't buy don't that. Don't
2: spend that money.
0: <laughs> of course not. Yeah. But the first credit card company, and you, know, you can have them now on your phone, right? Your, your Apple credit card. So it knows by proximity that you're at the target store or you're at Dick's Sporting Goods and you're about to buy something it's say you sp- you've already spent too much this month rob don't buy it yeah. now that is helping me manage my cash flow better now is the credit card company incentivized to do that is the bank incentivized to do that no no one's incentivized to do it i guarantee you if someone comes up with that they're going to take a slice of the market right off that those people who really want to manage your cash flow more more aggressively. Yeah. So I don't know. I digressed I off of the framing, but the framing is about the job, the job executor, and what the customer's goals are. Some are intuitive, like uh, oh, let's see a real intuitive one. Uh, I'll have to think about it. I I I have the more. The more nebulous ones in the top of my head, like when we did the, the the cash flow one, the bank wanted us to improve their savings accounts and checking accounts, and we said, "Yeah, but let's let's go let us let's have a bigger picture of what let's have the real picture of what the customer is trying to get done." Or we did one for a transmission a company that makes transmissions, and that is to can uh, to transfer power. That's the job. Uh, so, yeah. I, I any other th- questions or thoughts on that? I mean, I, I I struggle with this at times too. It it does yeah. it sometimes you have to really think very deeply about it. I'll tell a customer up front, we need to think about this. And we get a group of people together, we bounce ideas off of each other, we think about their goals. And uh yeah, here's one. A sports Betting Company came to us and they said, Well, betting enhances now, this is a this is a challenging one. Betting enhances the enjoyment of the sport. So we really want to study enjoying the sport more. (laughs) You're a betting company. Your platform is betting. So that one was a tough one. We had to really think about it. We went back and forth, got Tony in on this one. The way we framed it was win a bet on an outcome of an event. You don't bet to lose. You bet to win. Yeah. I think I do if I do.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And we said an outcome of an event. So it could be it could be basketball, football, it could be horse racing, whatever that is. But embedded in that is are the things that you might do to understand if you to make a better decision on winning that, placing that bet. Yeah. And so the outcomes we got were very much, would very much indicate how you might enhance their enjoyment because you'd give them information, you'd keep them up to date. You'd, you know, but if you studied it at like, help me people, why do people bet to enjoy the sport more? That is subjective.
2: And it would go, I love this because it would go in a very different direction. I mean, if, if and I've, sometimes I experienced that clients have hard time to imagine, like to be aware of the implications that it has, because if you say enjoy a sport more, then you would go into the direction of beers, uh, less waiting time, all that kind of stuff, which helps me or some people enjoy their sport more, right? So, so I, h- how long do I have to wait in, in, in line to the toilet? That's, kind of yeah so but but that's now what you want to know as a betting company that's right i I love this uh, i love this example so i i think there is a lot in 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 there's a lot of value in that because you have to think about and you for the for in jobs you don't give you the language to do this to think about the implications of the perspective that you take i think very often that step of framing is is jumped over and we all assume that we kind of we know what we mean, we know the direction that we're going. But just that example that you showed there, it it for me that goes into complete to two completely different directions. If you would come up with completely different ideas if you would go to enjoy the sport more. So I like that a lot. Yeah. I
1: find myself with a couple of challenges and Rob, I wonder your thoughts on it. One is if somebody has just read about jobs be done, becomes very excited about it, their tendency is to go a bit too high. To go, they want to get far from their solution, so they go a bit too abstract. Maybe that's similar to enjoy the sport. Um, there's the opposite of that, where they're just laser-eyed on their product. It's really about this thing that they buy, and then I find that as a challenge. And the other thing, if there's let's say there's four or five stakeholders in the company you want to create value for, they might not all. They some might think it's higher, and some might think it should be lower and having to neg- and and honestly it could be like there could be multiple like good answers i don't know what's the perfect one but th- navigating that conversation amongst their disagreements and getting to this difficulty of high versus low that's that's an area of executing this process i wish i could do better or faster or something my my sort of solution to it is to say hey we're going to let's take a lot of time to talk about this um, and, and really and be, but anyway, that's what, what are, what advice yeah. do you have for me?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I suffer, you're describing, I think a natural, the natural challenge of framing and, and the conversations with companies, but what you're really hitting on is there's no alignment on the team and you have to, you have to bring them into alignment. So COVID's changed a lot and And one of those things is we don't meet with our clients at the kickoff of a project anymore. We used to always. And what we did there was we made sure we vetted the framing. And I had been in a framing one time for a medical device company that took six hours. We had 20 people in the room. We had too many people, but we had to get them aligned. This is about alignment. This was, This was a dysfunction in the business that we had to bring the alignment around. The framing actually helped them see that. And we said, okay, we want to do this. And we said, okay, if you do this, you'll get this and this, but you won't get that. And then we said, okay, we want to do this. And we made those trade-offs around and around. And at the end, they go, this makes the most sense for us now. They were very thankful that we spent six hours in framing it. Uh, But today, today, we have to... So we're doing this asynchronously, Scott, we're doing this, you know, we, I'll have a call. I just had a really a very, another interesting call with another sports betting company. And so I uh, had an hour, it was supposed to be a 30 minute call went an hour It's just fascinating. I love hearing about their business and what they're doing and, and explaining how we, we might approach this. We're going to have another hour long call next week to frame that project. And a framing isn't done until we go validate that hypothesis, that hypothesized framing with real customers. So we'll put it in a proposal to them. We'll say, this is what it is. We're going to uh, win a bet on, a, on an outcome of an event. But then we're going to go talk to customers and we're going to validate that. And we've had times where the customers go, that's not really it, it's this. And a light bulb goes off for us as well. Uh, we had one of those in the tax preparation software space. So they make software for accountants called Tax Pros to do our Scott and my US taxes, right? And they, so we asked our customer, what, what, What do you think the job is? And they say, prepare taxes. Okay, so we went on our happy, merry way. We started talking to customers, the tax pros, and they said, that's a small part of our business. The job is really to devise and implement tax tax saving strategies. You see how that's different? It's fundamentally different. The tax prep is like two steps in a 10-step. Yeah. And this was illuminating for our client because it freed them to say, we should be in a whole bunch of other things around tax. It's not just tax, but it's a, it's, it really gave them a much broader room to play that they never even, they were contemplating it, but when they heard it and they saw the needs, they're like, Oh yes, this is, this is going to change the way we go to market.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The two tips I believe I heard in particular there. One is if you're navigating the conversation of how high or how low, Make sure they understand the trade-offs, what they're going to get at various levels. That sounds useful. The other thing, it sounds like you're allocating some some time of the qualitative interviews to validate, and then that would mean you would I don't know if validate is the right word, but to reconsider, maybe reevaluate, and then sort of continue that conversation with the company. Uh, to, to, you're allowing for it to to change, maybe to tighten or, or shift a bit during the yeah. first bit. Yeah,
0: yeah, we bring that validation. Or change back to the client before we go deep into the qualitative research. We do a couple of interviews up front. Uh, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but it, yeah. it can be just enough to get us like we forgot something here, or, or it, it, we're missing something. They they really nailed it. And then we go back. We say this you know, to our client. Then we go deep into that. So it's it's just good. I think it's just good I like- project. Yeah, I really like
2: this also, I, like, like one tip. I mean, I remember one project where it was really, I mean, there was like no alignment in the team. There was a med tech company, no alignment at all. It, very difficult. We did interviews with them. So like we spent an hour with each of the stakeholders just to get their thoughts and all that kind of, and it didn't work in the end. But, but and, and we thought, okay, what to what do, do? Now you can spend months trying to fix the alignment. What we then did is exactly what you proposed and said, we don't know, so we go out to the customer. I mean, in the end, it's them who we need to ask. So you can go out there. You might have a hypothesis here and there, but it's let's stop the discussion, the internal discussion, because we're okay. We will apparently never going to agree. So let's go out, talk to the customer. Worst case, they will tell us. Yeah. So, uh, so-
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it starts with the product or service that they are going to that they're working from, the platform they're working yeah. from. But Scott, you started this conversation about it being a new product, a new, a new job. Did you say that? Is that what you started? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, so anyway, it's harder in those instances, but it's still very doable. There's not that many new jobs we can talk about that, you know, on a different track, but, uh, framing can be challenging, but if you get it right, it's freeing to the product teams. I'll give you an example. And this is one of the misconceptions about jobs to be done. So one of our big financial service clients, really great company, so smart. I love these people. I had a call with them one day and they said, uh, Rob, we think we help our customers with hundreds of jobs. And I said, I don't think so. I think it's six. I just made up the number on the on the call. <laughs> uh, but I, after that call, I gave it a lot of thought. And they call, they called me back about six months later on something else. They go, oh, by the way, We agree with you. We think we help with nine jobs. It goes back to this idea of customers coming to you for a reason. You think a step in this bigger job is the reason, but it's not. It's the job. And you get focused on credit when managed cash flow. That's just one step in the bigger job of managed cash flow. So they 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 naturally think their market's much more complicated than it is. So it's a jobs to be done. I'll say it again: is a simplifying uh, model, and it should be.
3: And how often do you need to go back on on a, a framing or the a job definition? Because if you've chosen a job and and the uh, the ODI process is quite extensive and requires a lot of effort. Uh, if you've go, gone down that path, how often does it happen that you need to uh, maybe revise your job? And how does that happen? How How is usually in your experience the case that you, you think, no, the, the framing is not right here and we need to change?
0: Very rarely. Very rarely. And here's why. We go to great pains up front to make sure we get it right. It, this is not something you want to test With it's not like, and I don't want to give leave you the wrong impression. We make sure that it is ninety five plus percent before we go out. It's rare that we've got to come back because the company's in business. It's got a product, so that product's doing something. So we have a baseline. Then we say, well, what are your goals? So that gives us more information. Now, what we're missing is. Do customers see that or do they see a bigger picture of that? And that's where our expertise comes in because the job typically brings you up that level. So our customer might be, we want to cut wood with a saw blade. Okay. That's very, Mm -hmm. that's very distinctive to a platform. But if you want to separate wood, all of a sudden we've changed it. So, and then we, then we go validate that with customers, but it's rare that we have to go back. So I, I, make you have to ask the tough questions you got to get alignment with the team you have to ask what their goals are and make sure they're clear on those goals that gives you great confidence of the job at times when our team is not aligned and they try to push us in this more amorphous job statement and we just did this we're just finishing up a project now that the it took us an extra month to do the qualitative research because the job that they want they thought they they wanted their customer to do the customer said that's not the job we're doing and it's not the job we want and so we had to we had to go back and uh we probably added a half a dozen interviews but we you know when we see that it's going off from what our original thing is, we stop and say, "Why is that? what is what did we learn from the customer that is making us reconsider this?" And we knew in this one project that we were in right now, it was a customer's desire to fit what they had into something else. And I'll just leave it at that, but it's <laughs> it was it was an alignment issue. Think about this: every product or service has a job underlying it. So we've done this. I've done this thousands of times now. And so you say, well, what is that job? And uh, and you can get to it. it. It it becomes pretty second nature. The first project that I ever did was for a product called OneNote by Microsoft. And uh, it was, you know, was, I forget. I'm going to think about what the framing was. But the job was something like, uh, remember something important. it was something like that or it was, it was or, or, or now th- that seems a little too abstract i think it was down one around record something you must remember or something and uh and 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 that's what we did and, and it was phenomenal and we looked at people who use pen and paper people who use little tape recorders people who uh used it on their laptop these were all forms of things of helping them remember or record something that you know that's important uh It was, and it it was transformational for the OneNote team because they were thinking about taking notes online. We said, no, you have to look at it irrespective of the platform. And it really was, it was a phenomenally successful project. The client was so happy when they launched the product, it listed the note, it listed the outcomes of note-taking, a half a dozen of them on the box of the product. (laughs) This is when they sold, this is when they sold software. in in boxes, but it was an homage to the outcome-driven innovation process. The the group liked it so much because it was so precise about this job of recording information that you need to remember.
3: Hmm. And so the bulk of this work of framing is done without talking to to clients prior, and then you will go and uh, – so there's two questions. So that's my first question. The second question is, um, if is there any existing process or is there some approach you use to, to do this work with the end customer? So this framing. So if it's not something you do separately and without the customer, then what is the approach to actually discuss this with the, yeah. the customers. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right. We do do this at every project in the sense of we're validating everything all the time. So when we come to them for the sports, uh, for the sports betting one, we're talking to customers and say, is this what you're trying to do? We ask them about the job. And they'll say, Well, I, I might worry. you know, we don't really ask them to wordsmith it, but we'll hear from them. We'll go, Oh, that's interesting what they said. And so we'll have our job. And we'll have some things we heard. So the next, and we're capturing outcomes around that core job simultaneously, but we'll hear something else. And, we'll, and by the third interview, we'll go, It's not exactly right. We should use this because this resonates more. And I go back to what we said in the beginning semantics. This is a semantic discipline, words matter. And so we wanna make sure the word, the job resonates, but that's not as important as getting the outcomes that resonate, because those are the things that we'll actually test. So as long as the as long as they're betting, the job becomes the job framing is only as so, as, as soon as we know it's stable, then we're getting outcomes. And who cares about the job statement now? Because we're gonna test the outcome statements. We're not no longer gonna test the job statement. We know we're in the right ballpark. But if it's if the wording puts us in a different bracket, then we have to we have to really consider. But every interview, Jonathan, when we do, uh we the first interviews, we're validating they think about the job this way.
3: Well, I can jump in with an, another question. So we were um talking about expanding an existing product line, So the framing, I think we, we, you started talking about different situations with the client where the client is in. And one, uh, what we've been discussing, I think mainly is a situation where it's an established business uh, with a certain product line and they want to maybe expand this somehow or understand their clients better, something like this. And I was a- actually thinking, so what are the other situations you might be in? And, Uh, Maybe you guys can tell me if you agree with this, but the the situations I come up with is um, there's no existing product. Someone lives his life, encounters some kind of issue or service that he was not satisfied with and the person is entrepreneurial. So so I'm going to do something better in that space. And the um, another situation which I think we we encounter, for instance, a lot with this Web three crypto stuff at the moment. There's some technology emerges, and people find it fun and start working on it. And I want to. I don't know if there's another situation where you know one might want to start framing. Maybe is a, a, a fourth one, um, but I wondered if you could comment on on these two situations and are yeah. they fundamentally different to the case where you've got an existing product line and business?
0: Yeah. So one is that you're hypothesizing a new market based upon a new job. It's a job that people maybe just have to start doing, like protecting your identity on the web is a new job started back in when there was the web, 91, 90, 92, 93-ish area. That, that's That's a new job, right? New jobs don't come along that often, right? So you hear about all these fintech companies. They're still doing the same job that every other financial institution is doing. They're doing nothing different. They're doing it on a different technology. So the new job, uh, if, if there is this new job, let's say, someone knows about it. So uh, so a, some doctor hypothesizes that he can remove a gallbladder in a different way we have to, but you could still go to the job of removing a gallbladder. And so the new job, if it's truly a new job, then you have to ask someone who knows something about it, about doing the job. So when the web happened, you'd have to talk to people who were web experts, but you had people who didn't even know about the job yet. That one is the market, It's going to come around over time, but you can hypothesize. Well, if you put your information out there, you don't want to get stolen. Like what kind of information might you put out there? Well, credit card numbers, perhaps your address. You can, you can ask these questions about these emerging, these emerging markets. So I did a project 15 years ago, 18 years ago, and it was on the smart home. So technology was just really starting to come out. Like people were having Wi-Fi in their home, and uh, they like wow, this could really revolutionize the home. So what we we didn't go and ask people like anything around the technology. We said if your and this was a crazy, this was a crazy way to interview people, but it worked really well. We said if your home was smart and it could talk to you and tell you things, what would you what would it tell you? Well, they said uh, it tell me if we had a leak while we were away f- on vacation. Uh, it would tell me that I'm using too much energy when no one's there. It would tell me if someone came to my door when no one was home. That job, determine if someone's come to your house when no one's home, was the number one job 18 years ago. And
3: the there's, smart- a comp- there's this uh, company, I forget the name, that actually sold for... for Ring, billions. ring, ring, ring no, exactly, which, ring. Which, which, which
0: Amazon bought for a, a 1.2 billion dollars. So we identified a very, very lucrative market, and back then, 18 years ago, it was you had to wire a camera, and you know, get some electrician to drill it, and then you had to pull cable through your house to some closet with the, you know, the DVR, the uh, videotape cassette would be recording it. I mean, it was it wasn't easy, but the technology caught up to the job. The people knew of the job. The technology didn't catch up. Now, Jonathan, your second part was, "What about a technology that doesn't have a home yet?" Well, I think I think the whole, uh, you know, uh, oh, what's the the cyber not not Bitcoin, but the you know just basically the ledger, you know, the uh,
3: blockchain. 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 Yeah, blockchain.
0: Blockchain is a technology whatever. in search of problems. Yes. Like, and and one of the things that came to me was. We pay for deed insurance when you buy homes. You have to in America, you have to make sure that no one's encroached on your your deed of your home. It's a racket. I've lived in my house for 16 years. There's nothing I mean, I I, but I'll have to, you know, if someone buys this, they'll have to go through some due diligence to do this. Well, blockchain could have every transaction in there and show that nothing's been tampered with and nothing's been added to it or taken away. There's a job, but I'm looking for jobs where validity and security of the data is important. And that's how you do this. When you see a new technology, you say, okay, what are the benefits? What what, what might be some of the benefits of those technology? And we have had companies come to us and said, we've got this technology. We'd like to see where it might go. We say, okay, well, what do you think the benefits of it are? We've A lot of we see this in chemicals and material science. They say, what do you think uh, people do? Then you have to go find people who are doing jobs that might require those benefits. That's much harder. You shouldn't be creating stuff that you don't know where it's going to (laughs) go. That's Mm. my first rule. The second rule is it's going to be really hard to figure that out. It's figure you can figure it out. It just, it takes some thinking. And again, this is all the model of saying, what are the benefits? And then we try to bring it down to the outcome level. Then we go say, when doing this, when you're doing this thing, this job, are these outcomes important to you? And if they are, then we go back to our client and go, yes, you're onto something. Or no, they said that's not important.
1: Now that I, we've got that those was- first couple rules, that leads me to yeah. a question I had. the um, If we were going to have Rob's, uh, Rob's rules of innovation. You know, if we're going to send a ghost writer, you're going to, you're going to write your book on innovation. What are some of the major themes? You, you, it could be ODI related or completely outside of that. What, what are the major themes that you would, you put in there?
0: Yeah. The organization gets in the way of a lot of good, good work. And Scott, you can talk at volumes. We could get Scott Adams on here and he could talk about his Dilbert days at Pac Bell uh, uh, the organization can really frustrate good things from happening. And and it's not, I'm, I shouldn't say, you have organizational designs, one, and you've got old thinking, it's another. And the old thinking takes a long time to displace. So, you can tell them about jobs thinking and show them the precision of outcomes and show this is exactly where they want to create value. And someone goes, yeah, but I want to build this. (laughs) And so it can undo a lot of good work. Uh, I'd say one of my rules for innovators are go slow up front and everything downstream goes much faster. And this gets back to jobs thinking and outcome driven innovation. People go, I had a, Big tech company, you'd know the name if I won't say it, came to us and said, we have to have our five-year strategy done in the next four weeks. We need your help. And I said, okay, tell me more. We went through it. I go, this will take us five months. And they go, you're insane. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not taking this job on because I'm not going to help them. I'm not going to put myself in front of the senior leadership of this big tech company and have... Little insights. They call me back five weeks later. They go, "Okay, we satisfied the leadership. We liked what you say. We do have to go slow to go fast. We showed them. We looked at all of the. We looked at. It was a very unique. It was a very unique project we did. It showed them with great precision where to go, and they have followed through, in in spades. It's been phenomenal to watch. But this stuff takes time. They think it takes time. Here's the mistake. It takes way more time fixing stuff downstream. Down yeah. Ten times the amount and the cost. They like, oh, your fees, they're expensive. Oh, my fees are nothing compared to a failed product. One of our clients told us about a $35 million failure they just had. They go, that's why you're here. I go, I wish you called us long before that. Yeah. Because If you get this, if you pick the market and you understand the needs, you know that the stuff that you're putting into development is going to come out the other side. The only thing you have to figure out there is the design, which is important. And, you know, design and pricing, very important. But what's more important? Not doing the right need and designing something beautifully or designing or getting the right needs and designing something subpar? They'll buy the subpar product if it's doing a felt need. They will not buy the beautifully designed product, or they won't buy it for long if it's not meeting their needs. So it's this you have to flip the switch. You got to say, listen, if I every one of my companies that we work with, you go, do you have too little in development? And they laugh. <laughs> we have way too much in development. Well, why is that? That means either one of two things. You've got more idea, you've got more opportunities for growth, proven opportunities for growth. And you can deal with, in which case you need to raise money and hire people and get them out the door because you're going to win. Or you are working on stuff that's never going to see the light of day? It's one or the other. And now obviously it's some combination of that, but I do the polar opposites because it, it helps them make the decision going, you're right. We're working on stuff that will never, never
2: be successful
1: i'll buy that book <laughs> can, we, can I, we
2: broadcast this for like <laughs> we need to find out well, other channels to broadcast this message but
1: well, i mean i think one thing you're really hitting on is the you know the theme of the organization you know the truth is the executing jobs we've done in odi we love to, we enjoy getting into the minutiae of it but in a lot of ways it's, i think it's the easy part <laughs> uh the harder part i 100 percent agree it's your it's just the change management in the organization and getting people to understand the value and go as you say, going slow before going fast. Uh, that's de- that's definitely a, a a um a major challenge. That if for those that could could unlock that uh, would uh, do a lot of good things.
0: Yeah, the irony is once you have the job and all the outcomes, you have them, and you right. can keep working on them over and over yeah. and over again. And John tells me, our friend John tells me that he keeps using a project that Scott did 10 years ago, 12 years ago. They like, say We pull it out and
1: look at it. That's going on 15 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like The philosopher Tom Petty said, not Tom Petty, Steve Miller, time keeps slipping into the future. Boy, I almost made a major <laughs> musical error. I'm glad I caught that. It's like, yeah, Tom
0: Petty would be rolling over in his grave.
1: <laughs> Steve Miller, time keeps slipping into the- i' I'll, I'll share this. I was at a call with Tony one time and it, it, we were just connecting up for the first time in a while. He said, How you doing, Scott? I said, Well, well, time keeps slipping into the future. He goes, No, I think it keeps slipping into the past. And so I've been I've been I've been chewing on that ever since. <laughs> well, we're rolling down here towards the towards the end now. Rob, any anything else you'd like to let us know about before we, we uh land this plane? I'd just like to
0: say, uh, well, one, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, I think we're in the heyday of innovation thought. I really do. When I started this with Tony 20 years ago, people said innovation isn't a process. You know, people at 3M told me this. They go, it's serendipity. It's this, it's that. We said, no, it's not. Tony comes from an engineering background, Six Sigma. He's like, no, you can apply these same principles. And so we've gotten to a point where jobs to be done is excited the market. People people really get it. I mean, they get the idea that it doesn't have to be as complicated as they've made it. They don't get jobs to be done yet. I, I would love for that to be the case. They don't. But they get the idea that this is a powerful way to look at their market. It's freeing to them. Now comes the hard work, with podcasts and blogs and really getting the word out. We're like evangelists. We have to tell people there's a simpler way to do this. And everyone benefits, society benefits from this. We don't, but we don't put out product that fail and that and that go into landfills and we and we you know there is outcomes on all these things that we as humans would rather do better so we've got the model we've tested it over 20 years it works now we just have to get other people to think about this and to slow down and make the right decisions the right decision is so much better. It's so much more enjoyable than the wrong decisions. Take it from someone
3: who's failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'll second that.
1: I love it. Perfect. Perfect, Rob. Well, you can learn more about ODI with Rob's firm, Stratagen. It's www.stratagen.com. That's like strategy with an N, as in Nancy at the end. All right, Rob, we got one final question for you. This is just a little fun one. We're going to assemble our own innovation conference. We're going to have product managers. We're going to have leaders. We're gonna make our big statement. To, we're gonna fix this organization, but as part of the festivities, we're gonna have them to watch a movie. What movie are we all gonna to watch together?
0: What movie would you watch all watch together? Hmm. I don't know. That's a that's a really. I would want. I'd <laughs> want to think about that. That's. <laughs>
2: yeah i, I, I can th- so relate i mean this is i figured out innovation that's fine right but picking a movie <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah i wouldn't know what to I say could, either i don't think
2: yeah i think that's the toughest question to be well
0: you you pick ones that you like but then you yeah i'd want to pick one thought provoking there's a i'll just throw this one out because if you haven't watched it it's really a crazy movie uh uh the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind oh yeah with jim yeah.
3: carrey yeah yes yeah it's a oh. great movie
0: it's, Good it's, choice. it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a thought provoking movie. Like I want to eradicate memories, but then they come back and they don't really want to. So
3: anyway, it's uh yeah. that'd be. And by <laughs> the way, the uh Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David, I had never thought of that, but that's a brilliant <laughs> response to that question because he's so observant He He looks, he, he observes all the little problems, the little, and it's yeah, I also strongly recommend that, that series.
0: Yeah, you have to you have to have a high level of cringe factor though. I mean, like it, it's yeah, the stuff he yeah, says sure. is so bad.
1: He, he <laughs> says the things we we all think but don't necessarily say. I yeah. hope but,
0: I don't even think some of those things. He says I, out loud.
1: There's I love the one where they're they're in line at an ice cream shop and the, they're giving free samples and there's some person in front of them is just can I have a sample of this? Can I have a sample of this? And they're just sampling everything and he's like, No, you're cut off. No more no more samples. Oh, it's fun. All that's right, well, Rob, great. thanks for taking time with us today. You're I really at- enjoyed it. Thank you. Excellent. You're at ground zero, the top thinkers and jobs we've done at Strategy, and I love my time there. I've learned a ton from you over the years, and of course, very much appreciate your friendship, sir.
0: Oh, me too. Thanks, guys, for including me in this. This is fun. Let's do it again. We'll pick a different topic, though. Let's
1: do it again. Let's do it, Let's do it again. We'll dig into All right. this organization, we'll, and we'll... We'll, uh, we'll explore other movies maybe we'll just explore other movies and i was expecting you to say animal House. that's the one I, I thought i thought was coming it might not help with the conference but if we if we enjoy it then we're entertained and that that sometimes that's good enough yeah all right with that friends concludes today's product quest podcast. reach out to us anytime at product at gmail.com and we will see you next time an excellent like radio voice he's got a yeah. good voice
3: <laughs> your voice, yeah you
1: do <laughs> where i sound
3: it's like great. i'm getting ready to
1: go uh harvest some corn or something on the back <laughs> <laughs> you've got a great voice